Hello everybody and welcome to That's The Issue, the comic book podcast that gets to know you through the issues that you love. I'm your host, my name is Matt Loon and thank you for joining me. My co-host Wes Messer isn't with me for this episode as he's unwell. Um, you might be able to hear I've got a bit of the uh, the lurgy myself in my voice uh, so apologies for that. Um, but uh, it's a shame Wes isn't joining me because this is an exciting episode of the show as it's the first episode going up on multiversitycomics.com. Um, if this is your first time listening to the show, welcome. Um, think of this as a reboot episode, or a rebirth, if you will, of That's the Issue, um, as I'll be introducing you to uh, myself and the concepts of the show as we go along, uh, as well as catching you up on some of the best things that have happened on the show so far. Uh, whether this is your first time listening to the show or not, let me start by saying thank you so much for joining me. Uh, there are a lot of comic book podcasts out there, so you giving your time to listen to this show is greatly appreciated. Um, I guess I should start by introducing myself. Um, my name is Matt Loon and I'm a uh, comics critic and reviewer. I've written for Multiversity for about a year now. Um, mostly doing reviews, but also doing the occasional interview, evergreen article or long-form piece. Um, and if you listen to other podcasts than Multiversity Comics, you may also recognise me. Um, I'm one of the regular hosts on Super Comic Battle Wars, uh, the monthly show where myself and Carl Welch are joined by guests to discuss our top five favourite comics of the month, whittling them down to a definitive single top five best comics of any given month. Uh, we're mostly joined by comics creator Ian Mondrick, but we've also had letterer and friend Nikki Sherman on the show, as well as artist Riley Rossmo of stuff like Hellblazer, Batman Shadow and Dark Knights about Batman Who Laughs most recently. Um, I've also been a guest a couple times on the Comics Syllabus podcast hosted by Paul. Um, I've joined him to talk about Astro City for an episode, uh, as well as more recently I was on his show to talk about our end of year lists for 2017, so you should definitely check both of those episodes out. Um, speaking of Paul and of Comics Syllabus, that brings me nicely to this show actually. Um, That's the Issue is going to be a twice monthly podcast alternating with Paul's show Comics Syllabus. Paul's a good friend of mine and we've talked a lot about our shows and how we'd like them to interact with each other as time goes on, uh, but essentially think of our shows as companions to each other. You don't have to listen to both, although I hope you do, uh, but occasionally we'll join forces to dive into a topic or theme or comic book issue that's really important to us. If we were late 2000s era Brian Bendis comics, one of us would be the Mighty Avengers, one of us would be the New Avengers, two independent units that sometimes cross over or intersect. Um, I, I wish I could say that that was the geekiest thing I'm ever going to say, but it, it, it's nowhere near. Um, sorry about that. So anyway, back to that's the issue. As the tagline says, this is the show that gets to know you through the issues that you love. And what that means is that every two weeks, me and Wes will have a guest join us on the show. Someone from the world of comics, be they a creator, a critic, a fan or a friend. And we'll invite them to bring with them a comics issue or volume that's significant to them. It could be the first comic they read, the first they loved, the first that made them cry. It could be one that they created themselves, or it could just be an issue that really means a lot to them. Through our discussion about that show or about that issue or volume, we'll be getting to know that person and finding out who they are through the comics that mean the most to them. Simple, right? 
We'll also be talking um, about issues uh, in a little more literal sense and a bigger sense, using our show as a platform to discuss those big issues that are in comics, news and journalism today. There could be a big story that affects comics uh, or a comics event that's crossed over into the mainstream news cycle uh, or any big moment that's rocked our little corner of the internet. That's the issue, is the place to come to get intelligent, informed opinions about those issues. I'm pleased to say we've got a great team of dedicated writers, critics and fans here at MultiversityComics.com. So we'll be calling on them from time to time to help us tackle the big issues that deserve our attention, as well as getting your opinions about those issues and anything related to the show. That being said, I'd love to hear your thoughts on That's the Issue, whether this is your first episode or if you've been listening to our show for a while. You can reach out by emailing thatstheissuepodcast at gmail.com or you can reach us on Twitter at That's the Issue. I'm on Twitter too, I'm at Matt Loon and uh, that's M-A-T-T-L-U-N-E and Wes is at Geek Who Landed. So, without further ado, let's get on with the show. There are a couple of things I want to do with this episode as a sort of introduction to everything That's the Issue is about. Uh, firstly, I've told you um, about the fact that we are gets to know you through the issues that you love and things like that. So I've found a couple of segments from past shows that I'd love to share with you, a sort of best bits, if you will. Um, for me, these moments are what the show is all about, and it will not only give you the chance to discover for yourself what kind of show that's the issue is, but also give me the chance to play some of my favourite moments from the history of the show before we embark on this brand new journey on multiversitycomics.com. Secondly, I'm going to lead by example, and I'll let you um, get to know me through an issue of my choosing, something I ask of my guests often enough, so it's about time I took the plunge myself. I'm going to be discussing Fantastic Four, Volume 3, Issue 60, by Mark Wade and Mike Waringo. Uh, so that's it. I hope you enjoy the show. Uh, as I said, get back in touch if you, uh, if you want to let me know your thoughts. I would love to hear from you. Thanks. A little while ago, myself and Wes were joined by Kieran Shiak, himself a prolific podcaster with shows like Journey into Misery, Zero Hour, The Monster Society of Comics and Under the Hood, as well as former Comics Alliance editor and current writer for sites like CBR, Polygon and The Guardian. Uh, he's a really cool guy. Uh, he joined us to talk about Animal Man 26 by Grant Morrison and Chris Traub, but pretty soon we spiralled into a deeper talk about Morrison's meta-narrative. I asked Kieran to tell us about his grand theories about Morrison's larger DC Comics meta-story. For those listening, um, do you want to kind of explain it, um, what, your, what your theory is about Grant Morrison's work? Well, it's not so much like one large story with like one large narrative that has like a beginning, middle and end. It's more like a, like a thematic link between all of his DC Universe work and some non-DC Universe work like Annihilator can fall into this. Pretty much everything bar Batman and I say like, I say bar Batman like Batman is like a significant chunk of his time there so uh, it's like eight years and I, I could, like I've got an argument to work Batman into it as well although like I'm not fully convinced of it um, but pretty much of all of Morrison's work within the DC Universe at some point is about stories interacting with stories and a writer's responsibility with those stories and stories as a means of like as like layers of reality what are stories to us is someone else's reality and we could very well be stories to like a higher reality it's kind of like hmm. like a planar system going down so i think the easiest way to explain that is with multiversity mm-hmm. where in multiversity the, the different universes basically communicate with each other through the comic books. Like what what happens in an issue of like the Just, 
Like, that actually happens to them on Earth 16, but it's a comic to someone in Earth, like, 25 or whatever. And then you have, like, Captain Atom, who can, like, flip between them. But, like, he... One thing is, Captain Atom... And this is going on a massive tangent, that it's kind of one of my big... I don't know what it means, but that's that's the only, like, loose end Morrison left in the DC Universe. Earth 4 Captain Atom, he leaves Earth 4 in um, Pax Americana, but he doesn't come back. It, it's kind of like a, like, a, like a a loaded but unfired Chekhov's gun. Right. And I have my, my own thing where I'm like, oh man, what if he showed up in Doomsday Clock? But I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, but essentially, that's, where, that's how it works in Multiversity. But in Animal Man, you've got... First of all, you've got issue five, I think, with Crafty, the Coyote Gospel. Yes. Which is about, essentially, Wiley Coyote crossing over from his cartoon world into the real world and, like, the horrors of the real world. But mm-hmm. also, it's not the real world, because our world is the real world. And that issue ends with Crafty being killed and then uh, you can see a hand coring in the blood. Mm-hmm. So mind you, well, that's not real, this is real. Yeah. But I also have a theory that the cartoon world the Crafty's from, where he can never die, is the same world from Cap- that Captain Carrot is from in Multiversity. Right, okay. Son of a guy. <laughs> and then in Doom, in Doom Patrol, you have the Scissor Men, who are kind of fictional concepts brought to life. You have the Book of Unreality, or whatever it's called, mm-hmm. that kind of unmakes the world and brings about the uncreator. And you have, like most importantly, Flex Mentallo, who is a comic character brought yeah, to life. Yeah, he's the perfect embodiment of that, because he's from the old adverts, yeah. isn't he? From the old um, Muscle mm-hmm. Man adverts. Yeah. Charles but, that's it, yeah. But in, in Doom Patrol specifically, he's the kind of OC, like original character, of a little kid who is, is brought to life by that kid's like latent metahuman abilities. But you can trace it through everything. There's stuff in like in Final Crisis because that's kind of a multiversity thing. There's like the, the way Batman ties in is kind of with Barbatos and the way like Barbatos is summoned as this concept. But it's kind of I have a tough time like square in the circle of Morrison's Barbatos and the Peter Milken, Karen Dwyer Barbatos from Dark Knight, Dark City. Those two stories don't quite line up in ways that I'm comfortable with. <laughs> uh, but yeah, in stuff like The Invisibles has like, the, in The Invisibles, which isn't a DC Universe work, but it has Grant Morrison and King Mob change places for yeah, a year. Yeah, with him. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah like, I, don't, I don't have the full thing on hand at the moment, but I had this big list of like every, every Grant Morrison story in the DC Universe that's about stories. I don't have it to hand anymore. Because at one point, I was planning on doing like an Explain the X-Men Lasso of Truth style podcast mm. that was just going to be about Morrison's DC work. That, oh my gosh. It, it, it could it, fill an entire it, podcast series with it, absolutely. Yeah. You really could. It, it, it never came to be. Like the, the first arc was going to be uh, the first volume, the first arc of Animal Man. So the first episode was going to be the first arc of Animal mm. Man. But uh, it didn't come to be, unfortunately. It's one of those things kind of in the back burner, but I've got four podcasts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Already. When you're not, when you're not doing like, four podcasts, then maybe. <laughs> like, we've, we've, done an, we've done an Animal Man episode of Jenny's Misery. We've done a Doom Patrol episode. We've done a Batman episode. We've done a Final Crisis episode. Like, I'd just be kind of talking about the same stuff that we did in those episodes of Jenny's Misery. But yeah, that is essentially like my grand theory. 
or the Grant Morrison and the DC Universe? One thing that I absolutely loved, and I was I listened to the the uh, Animal Man episode today while I was working in the garden, and I had to stop what I was doing because I was laughing at um at helena's response because there's a i don't know if you've listened back to that episode recently or whether you ever listened back um i i, I know i think i know the moment you're yeah about. there's a moment um where you're describing the the mystery that there's a mystery man that kind of um pervades through the animal man series that you know uh, spoilers if you've not actually read it but um you know it turns out that it's it's buddy baker himself kind of going back through time to try and prevent his pet his family from being murdered um but there's a moment where helen is trying to figure it out and she says oh god it's not grant morrison in, in his own comic book is it and you kind of keep quiet because you're like well, it's, it, he's definitely not that and then later on you you know uh buddy baker in you know before this issue begins like the cliffhanger before this issue he opens the door to uh to find that grant morrison stood there and the uh, helena's response when she when she finds out that it's actually it is actually grant morrison she got it right that just made me crease because it's just the idea of her like being like you <laughs> because i've listened to it at a sequence as well like i didn't she was, she was so close yeah yeah exactly so yeah close. and i didn't hear like I'd, i've heard them before but I, I listened to this at a sequence so i didn't hear the previous episodes where you talked about grant morrison and so he's become this kind of swear word to her a little bit by the time it gets to this episode <laughs> because she's like oh god it's not grant morrison and she says like her, her brain's hurting by the end of it trying to like unfurl this kind of knot of grant morrison's narrative it's fantastic the grant morrison yeah. narrative <laughs> yeah that, that's one of my favorite moments of the whole show <laughs> yeah it's brilliant i don't know how hard like oh. i'm really really bad at like I, I have a really really bad poker face so it was really really hard to just like plow through the episode when she made that guess <laughs> yeah she's so close to it as well <laughs> oh no and what i love about the like going back to the 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 big meta kind of story that you know the meta themes that run through the stories rather is like the the concept of of kind of worlds within comic books within other worlds i mean that's not grant morrison's idea is it that kind of that that started like decades before in the dc universe the dc universe or the dc multiverse rather is kind of is built on that concept isn't it because of um you know i'm 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 yes, telling the audience uh, i'm the not telling you yeah because you know yeah. you massive flash fan you know it started back when barry allen met um met jay garrick for the first time well te- technically uh like well, well yeah that's when the multiverse that's but uh, the flash number 123 uh, the flash of the worlds but technically if you, want, if you want to like get really like anal about it you could say it started with um like the first issue uh, where Barry Allen shows up, because he yeah. isn't—he's inspired by his comic book hero Jay Garrick. Yeah, of course, yeah. So it'd be like showcase them. I, I, I should know which. I think it's showcase number four, uh, where Barry Allen first shows up. But st- could be like and still, that was when what? What year was that now? Like, or that's? I mean, that's going. Like yeah, so that's going back like, you know, fifty, sixty years, seventy years at this point. It's it's like, you know, so this kind of. This idea of worlds within worlds is is ingrained in DC, in the DC universe in a way that Marvel, you know, has never kind of touched that kind of concept. But like the way Grant Morrison has taken that idea and run with it is, you know, he's taken it leagues beyond what it could have, you know, what it obviously started out as. There are two Marvel universes within the DC multiverse. 
You're gonna have to explain. Yep, there that is. One. I'm, I'm, that's that's lost me now. I'm starting to get that Helena's feeling of my uh, brain starting to hurt a little bit. I think Earth Eight is um, an analog to the regular Marvel universe, and Earth Seven is an analog to the Ultimate Universe. Yeah, because didn't they explore a little bit of that in Multiversity in a way? Yeah, in the, in the first issue of Multiversity, you see. Thank you. Yeah, because one of them one of them is ruined, which is where. Um, the Hammer's oh, name, the Aboriginal Thor analog. Yes, uh, it's from. But there's also they also visit um, the universe of the Retaliators, yes. which is the, the Avengers analog who fight Lord Havoc. And there was a moment as well, yep. like yeah, the, the, right. there was a moment in Hickman's Avengers run as well, where they come across a, a Justice League analog as well. Yeah, in Hickman's Avengers, there's the um, the Great That's Society. It. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which has like Sun God and Doctor Spectrum and a bunch of other characters. I think you've just sent a lot of people on many journeys right now. We're always <laughs> like, imagine everyone's going, quick, find a copy of Multiversity stat. I think we need to reread it again. Like, or quick, let's find some Hickman Avengers. We need to reread that too because this gets deep. This gets like detailed yeah. really fast. We start getting to like all the multiverses that are in, especially within like the DC universe. I mean, you can get. Scare like that. I, I remember that was what became got me heavily in the DC for a period of time. Was like all the level of multiverses and all the different places that it goes. So, and Morrison was doing some heavy work in around that period. So I was just like, well, yeah, give me more of this craziness. I like I will gobble this up like a like a kid in the candy store. Give me more, please. Do you know about the secret uh, Marvel DC crossover from like the seventies? The secret one with. Um... With like like Steve Englehart and I think like Len Wein. Yes, I'm sure you've mentioned the, that Wes on a previous episode. No, I have, but there's there's a really weird like crossover they did that it's like the sub Submariner crossing over into an Aquaman issue. No, that, that, that's not that's not what I'm talking about. Okay, sorry. There's sorry. I want to talk about there's an issue. I can't remember what it is. I think it's like an issue of like Avengers or Defenders. And then, like an issue of Justice League, where oh, you, you go on, but I think I know where you're talking. I think I got it straight in my head now. But go on. There's essentially a, a bit in the issue. I could be getting this really wrong. It's off the top of my head. Where analogs for the writers and artists of both issue, you see them in the in the Marvel issue, like get in a car and like drive off somewhere, just as like a, kind of like a background detail. And then in the Justice League issue, you see that their car has like crashed and they're like inspecting the damage but it's kind of like like a background kind of easter egg so thing. funny dude yeah i i i cannot i cannot remember that whole thing i remember like the weird submariner aquaman thing but that wasn't a fit it's like but i could but that one yeah i couldn't i didn't remember that for the life of me that's awesome it's like when a uh, clock kent shows up in what's adminson's thor there's, there's, there, this makes me think this is one of those things where it's like um, that Pink Floyd album like Dark Side of the Moon that kind of ties in with Wizard of Oz it's just like whoever discovered mm-hmm. that it's like make, when, you, when you're when listening to it or when you see it that Dark Side of the Rainbow you kind of think well what else is out there what other things are like this it's, this is exactly the same it's like you, you see that you know if whoever first discovered who wasn't obviously in on the joke that that you know those creators get in the car in one issue and crash it in another it, that that kind of blows your mind in a way that 
you know, tying it back to Grant Morrison, it kind of it blows your mind in that same kind of way, doesn't it? Where you have that kind of your third eye opens to use kind of Grant Morrison's lingo. You know, it, it kind of makes you think, oh, mm-hmm. oh, actually, this, you know, it, it changes changes your whole perspective on it, doesn't it? It's like when you read uh, Pax Americana and you get to the last page and you realise you've only read half the issue and you need to read it again from back to front. It's absolutely, Pax Americana. Like you could talking about podcasts, you could do hours and hours discussing that issue. Yeah, I've con- I've considered um, doing like a bonus for like the Patreon. Doing like a like a short bonus series of like multiversity mm. where like I go really deep into each issue. But like who has the time? <laughs> Matt, should we should we tell Kieran about our uh, our our new running joke we stumbled into with the with the comedy that is Zorn? Oh god, yeah, we had some uh, one of our like friends of the show, um, Jose. Um, he um, asked he asked an open question on Twitter about Zorn because he's showing up. The characters showing up in the Secret Empire issues when it comes to like the X Men's uh, kind of new Tian that they're they're living on, and um, and where's you just told it pointed into Wikipedia or something, didn't you? you just said that no. I pointed him. They said Google. Yeah, just search. No one has Don't. the time to explain. I can't. Dog. I can't sum it up. You know. You know what. You, you know what. You could have read instead. Go on. My comprehensive Zorn explainer that I wrote for Comics Lines. Oh, see, we're gonna have to direct him to that. Serva. I if I if I would have known that offhand, I would have sent him there. Yeah. Sorry, dude. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I did a deep dive into Zorn's continuity last year because, uh, like, I, I am like that massive Morrison fan. Yeah, uh, dude. Oh my gosh, because we were because we were joke, and that's what started the joke of a Zorn cast because yeah, we we, we were like, it. it could be an entire wow. show. Well, Jose, there you go. If you're listening, you can go to Comics Alliance and look for that article now. It's a bit out of date because. I wrote it just as he was like showing up again in Uncanny X-Men. Mm-hmm. And I've not read the Uncanny X-Men run. So I don't kind of know how he gets from there to Secret Empire. No, I've so not read that. It, if you, if you want to know how, like, what his current deal is, I, I, I don't know, really. But it, at least there's a direction now rather than... Because I actually felt, I was like... It, I, I was like trying not to sound flippant. I was like going, Get, please go to Google, trust me. If I try to sum this up... And then people tried to start summing it up, and I was just like, "You're probably doing better than I could because I couldn't sum that up." And about like, because Zorn gets like, I would say like this go up with any more anything Morrison, it gets detailed mm. fast. See, that's not Morrison's fault though. No, Morrison, no, no. Morrison's Zorn is incredibly simple. Yeah, really? it's Magneto. Yeah, Morrison's Zorn is is Magneto in disguise. Is a Marvel it's decided? Yeah. Oh, actually. We That's when it got complicated. Yeah. <laughs> so no, Morrison's. So you're right. Zorn the Zorn is completely simple. It's what happened afterwards that got it complicated. Yeah. Because then they decided he had to be an imposter, and then he had a twin brother, and yeah, that's that's when it gets really. And then like the the collective comes involved. Like everyone always forgets the Zorn is in Avengers. Yeah, new that Avengers. was right early on in the New Avengers with the. It was something to do with the fact that there was a cloud of mutant powers that. The Scarlet Witch cast yeah. out, but it was hovering above the Earth, and then it all yeah. went into Zorn or something. Yeah, it's, it's like the fourth New Avengers arc, I yeah. think. Yeah. Oh, gosh, it's been a while since I read that. It's the third or fourth arc of New Avengers. It's like Mike Diodato arc. Because I kind of want to bring a little bit more back to the we were talking about when I think about Animal Man, and I think about how because I actually I think ever since you said that was your issue, that Animal Man was your issue, I've actually been thinking about it a lot because it's been a while since I've read it, but. 
I do remember pretty well because it is like the ultimate example of of a character confronting the creator that basically wrecked his life. Mm-hmm. Like, you wrecked my life. Why did you do that? And he did this really, and then it's like really weird when it's all said and done, and then eventually John Ostrander and Kim Yale bring him back in Suicide Squad. Yeah, I was, I was going to bring it up if you guys didn't know about it. I, was de- I, was oh, I only knew about that again bring him at up. the end of your episode, Journey to Misery, where you mentioned that the creator shows up in Suicide Squad, and that was uh, going to be a question. The, 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 I think he's the writer. The writer. Sorry, yeah. the writer. Yeah. And he has like um, like a typewriter like in like a little like front, like it's kind of like a backpack, but facing forwards with like, like straps under his arms. <laughs> and he gets like, he gets killed like immediately. Absolutely bonkers. It's like I, I, I the story behind that—that's that's crazy. Like, why did they put him in it then? If they were just going to kill him off straight away? I think the idea is like, a, as because as, Mo, like Morrison's story in Animal Man is about like how like the 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 writer of a comic is complete control, and Morrison essentially surrendered that control of himself. Right. When he introduced himself into the DC universe, I have like a like a little head cannon now that like. The writer exists within Limbo, the Limbo that's introduced in Animal yeah. Man, the um, where Merry Man is. Yeah, so he's now sat like, there waiting. If, if I ever get to do, I've been thinking a lot about recently, just like, just kind of like his thought exercises, coming up with like little pitches for like characters and stuff. Like, mm. I've got like a couple of Captain Britain ideas, like a Wonder Man idea, and I'd love to do something with uh, Limbo that brought back the writer. Yeah, that'd be such a call. Like, that'd be such a callback as well. Like, like game factory. In episode seventeen, we were joined by Dennis Camp, writer of the new Vault comic series Maxwell's Demons and all-around awesome dude. He came on to talk about issue one of Maxwell's Demons, as well as talk about some of his influences, including Jack Kirby's Fourth World and the art of telling a story across multiple comic book issues. One of the things I love about some of my favorite creators, like Grant Morrison is a, is, is a big influence on me, and, yeah. and Alan Moore, is that they're kind, of nego- they're kind of negotiating this space between how much to tell you and how much to, to hold back, right? Like, you want to tell people enough that it gets them interested and, and kind of blows their mind, but you want to leave space for them to sort of inject their own ideas into the narrative. And mm-hmm. yeah, with, with this kind of structure, you know, having a couple hundred years or a couple thousand years sometimes between issues, uh, you know, it gives you space as a reader to kind of guess what happened in that time. And, and it makes you wonder, who is this character? Because things change. I mean, he's changed a lot in that time, as, as people do. And so you kind of wonder, the, what exactly is it I'm reading? And you come up with your own theories and, and sort of you invent your own, you invent your own events. And... Uh, and I loved I loved doing that. That it's there's something participatory about about reading that way. And I think the best authors are able to get you to do that, and you end up loving the story more because there's a piece of you inside of it. You know what I mean? Like you wrote yeah. part of it for just yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I get. Well, that. yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like with you know, with thirty to thirty-five issues planned, you know, you've got this. You know that. I mean, that to me, that's a really exciting. Um, you know, kind of concept, this idea that, you know, issue one feels like, as I say, feels like there is that world beyond Excellent. the issue and, you know, kind of expanded there. But to, to hear that there actually is, you know, in your mind, you know, in your in your notes or, you know, whatever, yes. to feel yes. that it's, it's there waiting is yes. um, is extremely exciting. It's it's kind of like, uh, 
you know you know when you read a really good book and uh, and you just pick it up for the first time and then you think it, and you realize it's kind of part one of like a a massive story you know like dark tower or kind of or something like that where you know right, you feel right. like i love it i want more and and there is more you know <laughs> thanks so um, much i'm really happy to hear that i mean the thing about that 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 can be a little bit dangerous i look at game of thrones and and i like game of thrones uh, you know it's it's destination television and mm-hmm. but uh one of the things about game of Th- something like game of thrones where you're creating these really intricate worlds is that you end up with a lot of deferred payoffs you know like it's mm-hmm. kind of like you have to watch a season of game of thrones to really feel satisfied at least oh, that's yeah. how i felt yeah. right yeah. Same way. um and so I think that that can be a kind of a dangerous way to build your epics. Uh, I, I prefer this. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but what you are asking people is to, is to buy in very early with, with something that's a, quite a large buy-in, right? Like I have to, yeah. to watch Game of Thrones, I have to dedicate 10 hours of my life to it. And, and if I don't, and I saw this with Westworld too, if I don't, then it's not, it's not really satisfying, at least again, for me, this is just speaking for me, it's not really satisfying sort of episode by episode. So what I wanted to do is, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for comics as a monthly art, and I wanted to, to sort of respect that, to respect the unit in which it's going to come out. I would love to do like an OGN, and I, and I have plans to do an OGN, or at least a couple actually. And that's an entire, but that's an entirely different thing. You know, that's a different, me- that's, that's a different format, and that, yeah. it requires a certain, a different kind of writing, I think, for that. I don't want I don't want it to be a, a, a you know one story split into five issues. I want it to be five issues that tell a bigger story, but that also told five stories. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean that's quite um that's quite a classic way of um like classic. I mean in the kind of uh, you know for want of a better term i don't want to use old-fashioned because that makes it sound like it's out of date but it it does harken back to a a time of of comics writing that is um that's kind of lost its way a little bit now you know and i I know exactly what you mean you know i think comics have have kind of taken that idea of um of developing chapters for uh chapters for a trade or chapters for a for a kind of deluxe edition omnibus kind of thing Mm, rather than telling telling individual one-in-one stories you know so um, and, so I think it's kind of that. That's fascinating. So is that something that um, that kind of influenced you? You know, the the idea of like kind of old, you know, old Spider-Man issues, for example, being done in ones, or old X-Men comics being this kind of you know single unit. Absolutely, that that was a big part of it. But sort of the the reason that that fell out of fashion, there was a good reason for that. I think it was that you mm-hmm. can't really tell very sophisticated stories in in one issue if that's really yeah. if that's really all you're doing. Uh, but I kind of want to put that idea to bed, or at least to put the lie to it, mm-hmm. you know, that, that you can tell sophisticated stories over in, in just one issue by, by creating narrative connections from issue to issue that aren't necessarily, you know, direct, causal, or, you know, in an exact chronological order. So when you read five issues of of Maxwell's or 35 issues of Maxwell's or however many we end up getting, you'll yeah. get a very, very complicated story, I think, a very sophisticated story. Uh, but if you read just any one issue, you'll get, admittedly, a simpler, hopefully satisfying story. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. The, the structure of the book came about trying to, trying to do both the done-in-ones, the, the complete stories, 
but in a kind of in a in a sophisticated, characterful way. Do you know? So that's at least what yeah, I'm hoping for. Yeah. That's what because because I do th- you know I love those I love old comics. I, especially there are a lot of great ones. You know, Jack Kirby. I'll read anything. I'll read anything Jack, Jack Kirby did, and and probably one of my biggest influences is is his New Gods. Um, and uh, and so you can do a lot of great things with the done in ones, but there is a certain upper limit. And I so I don't want to say that oh there's nothing good about a six issue series it's more just i don't i don't love that that's the only way that people tell stories now which is that everything has to be six issues or yeah. you know what are you doing i, I don't love that yeah, I mean, I, new gods is a, is a perfect example of that really as well isn't it because i mean you know you've got kind of forever people you've got uh you've got new gods you've got mr miracle you can read any of those issues pretty much in any order you want you know you can you can swap and change some of them there are kind of beats that you hit as you go through them chronologically but you know the individual series you can read on their own you don't need to read the other things and yet all together they build this kind of this world this kind of mythology yes um that you know that works that you you know you get something you know a kid picking up kind of paranoid pill or glory boat will you know will sit there and they'll read that and they'll have a you know an amazing time with that one issue and they don't need a you know previously on they don't need a next time they just have that one thing whereas you know if they do read it as a chapter of a whole they get this whole new experience mm-hmm. um and that sounds exactly like what you're what you're going with uh, with max absolutely this kind of, it's a kind of modular storytelling where you know you're rewarded for reading more not punished for reading less exactly yeah yeah definitely. there's a there's also a really cool recent there's also another really cool example of this um did you, ever, did you guys ever read the uh, secret empire that means secret avengers story that uh, warren ellis did Oh, absolutely. The, yes, his run yeah. on Secret Adventures? Yeah. When he did, each issue had a different artist, and each mm-hmm. issue with a different artist still tied into a larger story he was going to tell with the Secret Avengers. Like, every issue had a had a different focus, different artist, and went kind of did each, and like, with the, he had like all these different artists on it, but they all tied into a larger story by the end of his run on it. And I went, oh, dude. Yeah, because they're like, they're like the last most recent example of that style of storytelling, and 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 not many people do that. I mean, that's why I dig what you're doing, Dennis, is that sort of like hearkening back to hearkening back going, because when Warren did that, I went, this is the coolest freaking thing. Yeah. And then it clicked yeah. with me when you were ta- telling Matt that bit. I was like, huh, yeah, I really missed that. <laughs> this, this is why. And no wonder I really glommed towards this. And there's also one thing I, I actually do want to ask you. There's, I, when sure. I, the one thing that I was kind of drooling over is, is the art on this? Where yes, of course. We have to get find Vittorio Astone. Am I, am I yeah. saying the name right? That is correct. Yep. Yeah. Um, Vittorio, I, I spend a lot of time trolling DeviantArt and, and Tumblr and, and every other possible form you can imagine looking for artists. And I found Vittorio's art on his DeviantArt, honestly. And he was doing, he was not very, he was, he's, he's a comic book artist. And he had had something published in Heavy Metal, um, a short story published in Heavy Metal uh, a year ago, I think. And and it's gorgeous. He does, um, but he was he was actually looking to do more to break into the European market uh, initially, which is kind of it's a different format. It's much more artist centric. You know, you have a lot Mm -hmm. more time to do uh, and a lot more space to do your thing. So I I mean, I understand, Um, but he was he was open to doing something, uh, and I said I was like, well, could you just draw the first 
issue of this thing, uh, I'd really love to just have it and it's going to look beautiful and I can, I can at least have it and just say, well, I've made a comic and that, that, that can make me feel good. And, uh, and so he agreed. And then in the, in the course of drawing it, he kind of, I think he, well, both, both of us enjoyed the experience. And he said, you know, I really, like, I, I'm enjoying this. And I've been thinking more and more about uh, breaking into the American market instead. And so initially, Maxwell's Demons, this, the first issue is, was just its own thing. I didn't create, I didn't have a, a whole backstory necessarily in mind when I wrote that first issue. Um, and I literally, when he said that, I, I built it all on the back of, of our collaboration because uh, I wanted to do more with him. I knew I wanted to do more with him. And, and the more I wrote, the, the more I wanted to write, and the more, you know, one idea led to the other and, and another idea led to the next. And, uh, and yeah, so I ended up with like this giant, with this giant uh, kind of map, story map. And so Vittorio, you know, Vittorio is amazing. He, Victoria's he, cool. yeah, he, mm. he, not only pencils and inks digitally, but he also colors yes! it all, right? Yeah. Wow. So he has so like total ever... control. I mean, he's not, he's not doing the letter. Um, Aditya Bidikar is doing the let- lettering and he's a, he's a really good friend of mine. And he's doing lettering on a bunch of really big books like Motor Crush and, oh, and cool. uh, he did Drifter with Ivan Brandon, which was phenomenal, and Nick Klein. Wow. Um, so he's a, you know, Aditya is the, probably the biggest name on, in our creative team. But, uh, but so he's doing phenomenal work and, and we're constantly going back and forth. But yeah, fact, Vittorio really handles so much of the book and he has such, I, I'm, I feel comfortable, I feel comfortable kind of pushing the envelope, especially in terms of formal stuff, you know, in terms of grids and layouts and all that, precisely because Vittorio is so great at what he does and he also, he does everything. So you can be sure that it's going to, you know, it's going to all come from the same place and kind of have that. That that feel of you know of, of being a bit uh, auteur, and so so mm. we can really push. Uh, in later issues, especially three, four, and five, we really push layouts and oh, and stuff in very interesting heart. directions. So uh, so I'm really excited about that. And yeah, it's a lot, so much of that is down to Vittorio and and him let you know me suggesting something and him not flinching and and executing it in in a fashion that. So it's my original thought to shame, you know. So can I just say now that now you say like like you like you're now that you're kind of saying I'm thinking now I want this when when this gets collected to be collected in like a giant oversized hardcover <laughs> just to relish you <laughs> off the <laughs> art. Because that would be a dream. Yeah. Holy that would be a dream. crap! That would be like I think people be like, whoa, that because I'm a sucker for cool oversized hardcovers anyway. Yeah, me too. So me too. Yeah, yeah. that so when that when you were saying Europe, I'm like, yeah, because. I could see that influence, that sort of yes. like that influence. Like right, I'm like, there's a very heavy European influence here, like very heavy. Because I, I, I am a little out of sync with it, but I, I, but I, I have followed a couple of them. And I'm going, yeah, that. Like I follow a little bit of like like Mobius and oh yeah stuff for sure. Too. So it's like I followed a little bit. So yeah, that's I'm like, oh my lord, yeah, I can see it, and I'm I think it's kind of like because. Because like the freaking the art's beautiful. I mean, the color work is a st- oh, it's amazing. Ah. He's amazing. Oh. He's actually he's he off of uh, after seeing this book, Vault asked him to color another one of their books that they're doing with um, Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly called I don't know exactly how to pronounce it to be honest with you, Jojaquan, I think it is. Yeah, um, 
and uh, he's coloring that book for them. Holy crap! Oh wow! Yeah, so he's doing. You know, I'm he's not doing surprised. Yeah, I'm yeah, not surprised at all. It's, it was great. Uh, we were. I was very lucky. So yeah, I just stumbled upon him, and and I kind of you know lured him into into doing monthly comics, and you know like it, it slammed on his leg like a bear trap, and now he can't get out. So and I'm and I'm <laughs> winning. Yeah. <laughs> so and and I get to reap the benefits. I've been very lucky. I've been yeah. Very it's lucky. cool. Yeah, I mean, you, you gotta um, find that. That is <laughs> fun. Yeah. No, yeah, you guys, lucky. you guys seem like a a great match for it. I mean, you know, you kind of answered this question anyway, but um, did you have like um, did you have a look for the for the story in mind when you when you set out to kind of find an artist? Did you kind of what what was going through your mind of how did how did you want it to look? Um, you know, while you were when you were looking for people, or, or did his style kind of influence how you how you wanted it to look? Yeah, there's a there's always a back and forth that sort of thing, you know. Uh, so. I knew that I needed somebody who could handle cosmic and scale and, uh, and, that w- and light. I, just, I knew that light was going to play a big mm-hmm. part in it with the doors and all of that. And, and we were going to be designing alien worlds and alien characters. And so that was, it was really important to me that, that, that there was a, a certain degree of command of, of all of those elements. Um, and so the first thing that I saw from Vittorio was like a short story in heavy metal, just a couple pages of it that uh, basically took place at the end of time and, and, and there was like all of these aliens that were trying to, to commandeer the last star in existence, <laughs> you know? So it was just this giant scale wow. thing that he just, he, he executed brilliantly. And so, uh, so I, once I saw that, I said, okay, what well, I really have, I'll do whatever I can to get this guy, you know, to, to work with me. And, um, and so... But then once he started, yeah, absolutely, what he was capable of had a huge impact on, on how, I, how I wrote the story. You know, the story was initially a little shorter than it is now, and, and I expanded that after seeing his work because I really wanted it to breathe. And, and the later issues, too, I, I wrote those specifically for him with him in mind. And so all of that has had a huge impact on, on how I'm writing and especially how ambitious I feel that I can be, you know, like. If you're when you're not sure who you're writing for, if you're just writing a script randomly, you kind of you want to make it as clear and straightforward as you can because you don't know what the strengths of that artist are. But the really great stuff happens when you know the artist and and you're writing to their strengths and you give them space to kind of turn the book into theirs. You know, they're the they're the stars. Always they're the stars. Whatever, you know, it's the art that's drawing the readers in. It's not the writing. So you have. If you're, you're not doing your job as a writer, if you're not, number one, making it easy as, as you can for them to draw, and number two, you know, you're not giving them space to make it as phenomenal and as, as personal as you can. So I just, I try to take that forward whenever I'm doing, um, whenever I'm doing anything. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah, that's I very eloquent. I'm, I like that. Yeah. I, I like absolutely. that explanation. <laughs> yeah, because this issue pretty much shows how much care you put into that, especially, because like especially like you see like like wide scale like like these wide scale like fantastic worlds that Maxwell enters throughout this throughout the book and dear lord there's like there's other stuff that pops up later I can't spoil because I don't want to and <laughs> you just that you just go whoa yeah that's I mean, that that's what made me just I I think it's just there's so much to it but it's just like that it's such it's such a book that like when you, you like 
like when you great like you get people you get people with the words and then people are like going oh these this reads really well and then you get and you get like the words lead to the, like this the striking art and then the two together mm-hmm. it's like because comics is that sort of art form where it's like yeah you're right exactly right where the writing is like writing and art merged together yeah. to create something true and and when both are firing all are uh, on all cylinders like this you're just going wow that like mm. like this is like this is sort of like one of the things I, I always said like that's why that's why you could tell my initial excited message to you that is i was going this is like this is so freaking cool because i i just it just made it made me smile but also made me go okay i do i i really do and i really do and that and that's why i wanted to, make, wanted to ask you about vittorio's art on this because i was just going dude where did you find this cat because that's <laughs> that was just like this is one of the things i had never heard of vittorio before until now so when uh, I heard- honestly, I've been so lucky about finding artists is the truth. I mean, Vittorio, he has not done any American work. I mean, previous to this. And so it's really just a matter of, of going online and, and contacting people and, and getting a lot of a lot of no responses or negative responses. But um, but, you know, I've been but if you do the work, there's so many great artists out there that just haven't been given an opportunity and given a platform. And I just one of my I had a, I made a short story with um, with another friend of mine, uh, or with a with an artist that I found from, he lives in England and but he's from France, and uh, it just won an award. It just won a Ghost City Comic Competition Award. Awesome. Um, because he is, but it really is down to he and his brother. His brother colored it, and he, and his uh, and he he drew it, and they did just a phenomenal job. And and they're just wait, you know, there's all this talent out there that's just waiting for a platform and an opportunity and. And now he's he's doing a pitch with a much bigger writer than me, and he's going to be huge. And but you know, out of all of these, out of all of these, you get a friendship, which is also amazing. You know, there's a there's yeah. a there's a bond that forms when you're making something together. I think that that's just really rewarding, and it's one of the most rewarding things about a collaborative medium like comics. And and, and it's part of why I love working in comics because you know it's you get the creative freedom of doing something you, that is that is you. You get to you ultimately have like the final word and final sanction on on what the comic is you and and your artist you know and your co-creators but it's also there's also something collaborative there you know it's in tv there's so many vo- or or film there's so many voices that you don't whatever your vision is there's a lot of you're making a lot of compromises right you don't have to make as many compromises in comics but you it's also not as lonely as writing novels alone in your you know in your one room apartment uh and and so you get kind of the best of both worlds, and uh, so I've been really grateful to found Vittorio not just as a as a collaborator or as an artist on on this book, but just as a friend, and you know, and just chatting with him about not just not just Maxwell's, but about you know what's going on in life and and all of that. Uh, that's that's one of the greatest things about about comics in general is that you make all of these people who are genuinely your friends and excited about a lot of the same things, and also excited about a lot of different things, and that know different things and can introduce you to different things. You know, I've learned a lot from Vittorio about art and and how to how to better make comics as a result of that. You know, you, you have to understand the the rules of art and and sort of the approaches and, and the techniques. I, I can't draw with a lick, but visual storytelling, right? This is this is a game of visual storytelling, and so understanding what has what impact is extremely important. 
Lastly, we were joined by writer Ram V, one of the creators of Paradiso from Image Comics, who came on to talk about that debut issue. Along the way, we talked about what it means to build a rich science fiction world that feels deep and fleshed out, as well as how a city comes alive. You mentioned that you um, you came up with this idea, or you, you started this idea with your friend, uh, is it Rajiv? Um, who's a, like an architect yeah. you mentioned so um did, did did a lot of that kind of did his his skills as an architect come into play when you were kind of designing the the world you know what what kind of um what kind of uh, skills did that yeah, bring absolutely. into it i mean he's uh, he's an architect and also an urban designer so part of his job is to think about part of his job is to think about how cities and the people who live in them interact mm. Um, and I, I mentioned this in an in, in interview, uh, email interview I did a couple of days ago that because they said, you know, cities have always affected human lives and, and have influenced humanity. But, but I think that's a far more reciprocal relationship in that, you know, you could have an abandoned canal that, you know, 50 years ago was was an important source of water for the city. And then today is like a a makeshift skateboarding rink. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that fundamentally changes what it means to the city. It changes the kind of people who go there. It changes the problems that people have around it. It changes the kind of um, encouragement it provides to the people who are there. So, you know, you may you may end up having incredible skateboarding talents or incredible artists doing art on skateboards or, or, or street art cropping up on these walls that you would have never had, had it still been a canal. Um, that kind that kind of relationship where people define what a city becomes, not necessarily a city is not necessarily defined by its function. That kind of uh, input uh, I think is very important and it's a huge contribution that Rajiv had uh, to the story. Uh, so like he had a lot to, yeah, yeah, he had a lot to contribute conceptually. And apart from that, obviously there are characters that he's designed, um, like a couple of the guardians or, or his designs. Uh, there are characters really? that I've just, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were so both, cool. uh, we were both sort of big uh, science fiction fantasy nerds uh, when we were, <laughs> when we were in college. Uh, and so it's definitely it's definitely a co-created world if you will like the urban architecture thing fascinated me when you caught that because mm. i i always find that fascinating how people repurpose stuff and and that's why because it's like in, in like in my neck of the woods there was like a city that was once just like kind of like dry 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 and dreary kind of downtown area and then recently they tore down a building revamped it turned into a small community park Added the community garden. Wow. And they just completely changed. And I'm like, that's interesting. And now, and they've added like all these like artist studio, art, like artist studio apartments and like art, like art stores and like yeah. a bakery and yeah. all that. So they, they completely turned it into something completely different than, than what it was like a few years ago. Yeah. And, 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 and- it's it's super interesting to even observe in real life the kind of butterfly effect that has on you know things that are maybe you know, three subway stops away from this place, whereas you might have seen um, a different kind of atmosphere 
10 years ago, now you'll find that the kind of people who go on the subway have completely changed. The kind of people who are living in the area have completely changed. Mm. And that kind of, that kind of difference is, is, is part of what makes up the personality of a city. Um, and so, exactly. which brings us to kind of the, the larger theme of what we're trying to do with Paradiso is say that, imagine if, if, if a city came alive and tried to understand who she was, um, she would not be able to define herself. And I say she, because we're, we're treating Paradiso um, as, a, as a female. Um, she would not be able to define herself without first understanding the people who live within her, because she would realize that I'm not, I'm not my function. I'm not a set of roads and bridges and buildings. I am who these people want me to be on some level. Hmm. And also the people define themselves. Like, you know, people go around saying, I'm a New Yorker, I'm a Londoner, I'm a, I'm a Mumbaiite. So people define themselves by the city that they come from too. So it's almost like this reciprocal definition where one cannot exist without the other. That's interesting. Cause it's like, like when I was telling you about like my area, I mean, it's like, like when they, when they started adding like the different art store and stuff like that. And now for the first time ever, my area has a comic store Yeah, that had never happened before. And it's like, we got a comic store now. We, we never had a comic store. Like, <laughs> like now I have a comic store, like, like maybe like a couple miles away from me when yeah. like went back in the day used to be like, I had to travel a good bit to hit a comic store. Like they were still relatively close by, but now it's like, there's a comic store just down, down, like barely 10, 15 minutes away from me. There's some 10 year old kid who, who lives across from the comic book store who will be like a super cool artist or creator, you know, 10 years yeah. from now. And he's <laughs> never been there. Yeah, and well, that's it. Like the the people that the people around that area will be influenced by that comic store, and then likewise, that comic store probably wouldn't have set up shop there had the people not, yeah. you know, demanded it. And so it it is like it is very kind of uh, almost like a chicken and egg kind of situation, isn't it? Really, where you don't know you don't know which influence is which to the point where it almost doesn't matter. Like you know, you have this kind of um, you know ecosystem of of people that just kind of like a like a cyclical, um, yeah. you know, relationship where, you know, you, you give and take to it. And I think that's, uh, that's like a fascinating concept. And it's, it's really kind of, um, it, like you talk about the kind of the skate park and stuff, and that's almost like it's evolving, you know, almost like the, the, the landscape is changing in kind of unpredictable, unpredictable ways. Yeah. And like, uh, you know, the, the, the people are defining what the city is, but the city is, you know, defining the people as well. It's, it's, it's like a great kind of so, symbiosis. So now imagine, imagine the city looking at that as her body and her body constantly changes depending on what the people want it to be. Um, and so, so I think that's a super, super interesting concept. There, yeah. there's definitely, there's definitely a story arc based on, on that very idea that everything changes depending on the people who are living there. So Cause you could do stories of like, like the city. Cause it's interesting. Like when I, cause I never, I, when I went to Chicago for the first time mm-hmm. and getting to see a really big city, I never had been to Chicago before and I never had right. been to, I never had seen like my first time. So seeing like a city like that, a hu- like, and just, and seeing like a huge city, like with like levels and like di- three different levels of like city, the water around and like a river bait and like a river bank. And you're like, and that you can walk around and, yeah see like different food stuff and stuff like that and you're going 
this thing really is a living breathing because cities are living breathing things of their own yeah everything's like everyone's like and everyone has a story within this city and it's like and whenever someone adds something new to it or some small little thing that small little thing can blossom out into something much more than anyone could have expected yeah and and yet these are these are immortal these are immortal things compared to our lifetimes um but also they're influenced by us so so that's that's like a really beautiful relationship for me uh Mm. and and like a huge motivation behind why you're writing this yeah yeah and it is fascinating because like you think about different cities and and different cities that you go to have they've got their own kind of personalities Personalities. haven't they yeah and like that and that's not you know when you talk about kind of as you west just talked about chicago you know you don't talk about the people of chicago you talk about the city of chicago is this you know the city is this the city is that and like and that's and that's like very influenced again by architecture isn't it because you know if, if someone wants to build like a new a new skyscraper in new york like it has to fit in with the it has to fit in with the personality of New York, you know. So if someone, if someone, you know, brings a design to the table and it doesn't suit, it doesn't suit New York, it doesn't suit the, the or it doesn't suit Chicago or you know or London or wherever, then then it doesn't get the approval. And it's like it's it's such a strange concept to think of. Yeah, it you know? becomes it becomes exactly. like the the walkie talkie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, like, yeah. The, 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 the oh, I want to hear about this. Cool. I, I, I don't know about this, so I want to hear about this. this is like... uh, so, so it, it won like a like, like the the architectural equivalent of the Darwin Awards. It won like the worst architectural. <laughs> yes, award, yeah. Uh, a couple of wow. years ago, and it's a really expensive, really sort of snazzy looking building, but um, it just doesn't fit uh, in 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 so many ways. It doesn't fit the architecture mm-hmm. of London, uh, and. It had like this, I mean, an interesting quirk of its design was it, it has this weirdly concave surface. Oh. And so when the sunlight hits it, it focuses all of that light onto some random spot on a road. And there were oh, cars yeah, parked yeah. on that road. Oh, and, no. and the interiors of these cars melted oh, because the building was focusing yeah, sunlight. Yeah, that was crazy. It is so amazing. I just found a picture. But that can only happen in a modern city. Yeah. You see yeah. that? So I, that's what I was when you heard the typing that's I was looking up the I was looking up to see what it looked like and I was like oh I can see it yeah walkie wow. talkie yeah <laughs> that is fascinating thank you to all our guests for joining us on the show and I hope that you'll join us on That's the Issue throughout 2018 where we've got plenty of exciting guests lined up to talk about the issues that they love now it's time for me to talk about an issue that I love and as I mentioned earlier, it's Fantastic Four, Volume 3, Number 60, by Mark Wade, Mike Waringo, as well as Carl Kiesel, Paul Mounts, Richard Starkings, and Comic Craft's Albert Duchesne. It was dated October 2002, and it was part of the 25-cent issue promotion that Marvel was doing around that time in order to bring in new readers. Because of that, this issue is a perfect jumping-on point for new or lapsed fans, and served as sort of a brand new gateway into Marvel Comics for me, as it's because of this issue that I'm the massive comics fan that I am today. I've mentioned before on the show, but my first introduction to Marvel Comics proper was the Heroes Reborn series, specifically the Marvel UK reprints of Fantastic Four Volume 2 and Iron Man Volume 2. At the time, these two series were collected in two-issue volumes of a series called Marvel Heroes Reborn, and regardless of how history has shined on that era of Marvel, or even how my own opinions about the initiative have changed over the years, it did its job and got someone like me, who'd only read books like The Beano or Sonic the Hedgehog before that, into American superhero comics in a big way. 
After reading about the exploits of the Fantastic Four and Iron Man in Franklin's Pocket Universe, and following them into the main Marvel 616 universe with Heroes Return, I started going to the comic shop in order to get the latest American issues directly. From there, my reading list burst wide open, and I'd found myself reading as much as I could afford. Mostly it was Marvel Universe stuff, but occasionally an Image Comics, Dark Horse, or even DC comic would slip in there too. It would be many years until I started reading DC Comics proper, um, but that was a mission that I'm still paying for to this day, as I struggle to read as much as I can in order to catch up. Anyway, that all brings me to Fantastic Four issue 60. As is the way in life, I'd found myself moving out of the family home and off to university, and as such I didn't have the time or money I once did to dedicate to comics. After a couple of years of reading everything I could, I sort of dropped off. Another couple of years went by where I hadn't exactly stopped reading comics, but my habits had moved away from the comic shop and more to the trade collections of friends. I remember the two big comic runs I devoured around that time were the Ultimate X-Men series and every volume of Garth Ennis and Steve Dillon's Preacher, both of which were courtesy of my housemate at the time. I don't know why or how, but one day I found myself back in the comic shop, and as old habits die hard, I found myself looking up my friends in the Fantastic Four to see what they are up to. As luck would have it, the series was on to issue 62 or 63, but the shop still had plenty of issue 60, and the issues that immediately followed. I picked up issue 60, was floored by the gorgeous Waringo artwork, and hooked by the easily accessible plot. I picked up that and every subsequent issue, about three or four in total, took them to the counter and set up a subscription there and then. The truth is I probably missed the single issue market and was just looking for an excuse to dive back in. Either way I got it and from there I never looked back. I moved on to the Ultimates and Ultimate Spider-Man, pretty soon it was Astonishing X-Men, New Avengers and then who knows what came next, except it led to everything. Pretty soon I was picking up almost every Marvel book they were putting out, as well as plenty of independent books and trades so that I could catch up, and even the odd DC work, although it was probably limited to Batman back then. So what about the issue itself? Well, Fantastic Four Volume 3 Issue 60, aka Fantastic Four number 489, as the cover politely tells you, and a neat little bit of preemptive foreshadowing for the major upcoming issue 500 milestone, was a standalone story about just who the Fantastic Four are. It follows an independent marketing agency that have been hired by Reed Richards to improve the image of the team. Apparently merchandising and general revenue that's accrued just by being the Fantastic Four is drying up, and Reed hired this firm to see if there's anything they can do to change that. Along the way it's clear that Mark Wade is using this as a way of exploring just who the team are, both as individuals and as a family, as well as try and define what the Fantastic Four are all about. It's a pretty amazing standalone issue, and I couldn't think of a better introduction to the FF, as it perfectly sums up just who they are, and more importantly, who they aren't, as later in the issue it's claimed explicitly that they are not superheroes. They're explorers, they're pioneers, they're a family, but they're not superheroes. Being superheroic is just a byproduct of the life they lead. I'm not sure whether I 100% agree with that, but this is Mark Wade making a statement about the team and about the kind of book he's going to write. And that sort of meta-statement about the FF is something that really appeals to me. Wade also asks the question of just how and why Reed, a man of science and exploration, would care about their public image. The rest of the team brush it off as him being concerned about the income that the family get from merchandising, but in a private moment with his daughter Val, he explains the true reason he's doing it. And it's that monologue that sold the issue for me. In this speech, there's a bit of, shall we say, artistic license when it comes to the early history of the FF. It never rewrites anything, but it very subtly tweaks the motivations of the team, especially Reed Richards, by revealing how hard he worked to create the public image of the FF in those early days. 
by putting them in costumes, by building them a headquarters in the middle of Manhattan, by giving them all names like Human Torch and Mr. Fantastic, he was trying to provide them a life that makes up for the normal lives he denied them. This issue is bookended by scenes depicting someone retelling the origin of the FF. At the start of the book, it's an executive spending a page telling us the story we all know about a team of explorers and imaginauts caught in a radiation field during a stolen spaceship launch and returning to Earth with superpowers. At the end of the book, that same story is told by Reed, but it's very different. Instead, he describes himself as arrogant and insensitive and thoughtless for dragging the three most important people in his life along with him on an insane gamble that nearly cost them their lives and certainly changed them forever. So his way of trying to compensate for that was to go the most extravagant extravagant option and give them this opulent lifestyle, uh, as well as make sure that they had a public image that would ensure that they are adored by millions. He even gave himself the name Mr. Fantastic in order to catch headlines and sell t-shirts. I mean, sure, it's not an elegant answer to why this guy would call himself something so ridiculous when his best friend has literally become a rock monster. But in the context of this issue and in what Mark Wade is going for, it works. If you've ever seen Mike Waringo's art, you'll know why I think he's amazing. To me, he was the quintessential artist for the Fantastic Four, as his work was sufficiently wholesome to capture the family dynamic, but also wildly expressive and dynamic, making the action scenes explode. Later in their run together, Wade and Waringo would put the FF through some pretty horrific things at the hands of Doctor Doom, and there's something about Waringo's cartooning that makes those scenes even more terrifying and disturbing. Here, in this issue, his clean line work is a perfect way to discover these characters for the first time, or rediscover in my case, as there's nothing about his work that isn't instantly welcoming to this colourful new world. Each character is given some great moments, especially Reed, whose super stretchy powers are rarely given as much page time as his smart, sciencey brain. So it's great to see him stretch and twist himself in the action scenes, and even morph his face into comical shapes in order to make his baby daughter laugh. My favourite character, full stop, of anything ever, is The Thing, and Mike Waringo's Ben Grimm is my definitive Ben Grimm. He's just amazing, he's the perfect size and looks suitably beefy, not too monstrous but clearly abnormal body shape and size, but with a kind face that is ideal for the ever-loving blue-eyed idler millions. He gets some of the best scenes in this issue, including one where he just walks away chuckling when the guy sent to interview them asks if they do what they do because they're superheroes. Um, and when he's bickering in the backseat of the FF's cosmic shuttle, that stuff's just fantastic for gold. Not everything works about the issue. For instance, there's a scene where the thing runs into some lads who are rapping along to a track they wrote about Ben Grimm, and while the sentiment is spot on, more people love the thing than he'll ever understand or accept. I always wince inside whenever Mark Wade writes dialogue for the kids on the street, heavy quotation marks there. It's not entirely Wade's fault. An older white guy trying to write in the voice of a young black man is always going to be problematic. And his work on Champions lately is a worse offender of this particular crime, so I can let this one slide. There's also a scene where the marketing department are putting together a rebooted comic of the Fantastic Four called F! F! Leaving the guy that's been following Marvel's first family around for about a week, pointing out to them that they should write a comic about the people and not the costumes, and then people will care. As author's insertion into the work, this is a little too on the nose for my liking, lacking any subtlety at all, just in case you're in any doubt what the intentions of this issue were. But again, this is only a minor grumble, and made me chuckle more than anything. Overall, Fantastic Four issue 60 is one of those single issues that will always stand out for me, 
not just because it's a near perfect introductory issue to my favourite superhero team, but because it came out just at the right time to get me back into comics. I dabbled on and off for years before this came out, but when I picked this one up I was fully in and I've never left, picking up single issues in some form every Wednesday ever since. So that was my issue. What's yours? I'd love to hear about the single issue that got you into or back into comics. Uh, hit me up at um, Matt Loon on Twitter or contact the show directly at That's The Issue or via email at That's The Issue Podcast at gmail.com and I'll read out the best ones on the next episode. If you've got thoughts or suggestions or questions for me or the show, you can contact me there too. Honestly, we genuinely love to hear from you. If you enjoyed hearing from the guests on this show, you can reach out to them on Twitter too. Kieran Shiak is at King Impulse and all of his podcasts are at goodeggpodcasts.com. Dennis Camp is at M. Desard and his Vault Comics series is Maxwell's Demons, along with art by Vittorio Astone and Aditya Bidikar. Ram V is at The Right Ram and his Image Comics series is Paradiso with artists Dev Pramanik and Dervla Kelly. If, in, if you've enjoyed this show, please consider sharing with a friend or two as that will really help us to grow. And don't forget to join us in two weeks where hopefully Wes will return and we'll have a great guest joining us. That's all for now though. Cheers to you and we'll speak soon. <laughs>